Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hey, Amitha. Great to see you. It's nice to see you too and be back in the city. We're so happy to have you home. And of course, I have to give you a shout out for your badass nails that you were sporting right now. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I had to get a fresh coat in preparation for Freeze this week. Really good call, actually. So aside from Freeze, what else is on your radar right now? Well, you know, as we were preparing for this recording, I was looking back at our archive of episodes and just realized that this is actually going to be our 15th episode. So it's an exciting milestone. What? (laughs) No way. Yeah. And it was just so cool to look back at all of the past episodes and really reflect on all of the dynamic people in the arts that we've been able to connect with and speak to as part of this project. Yeah, it's so funny. One of the things that I love about this project is how you get to really research these amazing individuals and dive into not only their professional practice, but also their personal life too. I think um, I love learning about people who do amazing things, but who are also people as well. I love that part of this. Totally. And also, I think it's surprising, even in the case with someone like this current guest, you know, having seen their work at the Venice Biennale and other venues, you you really are only looking at them through an art context. So it wasn't until we were preparing for this interview that I learned some really impressive things that they've accomplished, such as raising a large family as a working artist with another working artist partner, which is really amazing to think about and just incredibly inspiring. And so I'm excited to share this 15th episode with our listeners today. This episode, we are extremely lucky to be joined by the pioneering artist, Phila Dabalo. Originally from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England, Phila works across media, including painting, sculpture, and drawing. She is known for using materials such as plaster, cement, and scrim to, as one curator said, turn the conventions of sculpture on their head. Philida has been widely exhibited across the globe, including most recently a solo show at the Royal Academy in London in 2019, and I believe just this month, an exhibition opening at the Haus der Kunst in Munich, Germany. In addition, among an almost never-ending list of very intimidating accomplishments, Philida was made a CBE by the Queen of England for her services to the arts in 2015. (laughs) And in 2017, Philida represented Great Britain at the Venice Biennale. So Philida, it is a true honor to have you with us today. We're absolutely over the moon in case you can't tell. So welcome. Well, thank you. This is a tremendous occasion for me as well. I'm very honored to be participating in this interview. Well, hopefully, at the very least, we're giving you a distraction from lockdown. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's what we all need, I think. (laughs) Well, I hope that we'll have a fun conversation. Yes. I'm sure we will. Have more confidence in us, Will. (laughs) (laughs) We like to start a bit broad. So can you pinpoint your art origin point or recall a specific cultural experience or artwork that really changed the way that you see the world? I think I was always interested in making and drawing since a very young age. And um, I think it was my mother who, in 1950s, Britain. She was very good at making do with all sorts of materials and sewing and domestic things. She was an innovative woman and a a brilliant mother, you know. And um, we had this fantastic doll's house that her brother made for my sister, actually. And um, she showed us how to make furniture out of matchboxes and out of conkers 
um, sticking pins in them and then weaving wool around them to make little chairs and numerous other things, cutting scraps of mm. fabric up to make little clothes and making pretend food out of dried up flour and water. And um, oh. I just loved it. I loved those activities. But a bit later on, we went to Paris. My parents took all of us as a family to Paris in about 1951, not so long after the war. So driving through mm. northern France was quite a revelation, I think, to all of us children, seeing the damage, you know. Mm. And in when we got to Paris, my parents wanted to make contact with their friends, the French friends they'd known before the war. And one of... Wow the particular outings we went to was to go to a very sort of famous row of studios where a great friend of theirs who was a French artist called Xavier Lalanne and his wife Francoise, mm. who eventually became the main jeweler for Yves Saint Laurent. But this was early days mm. in wow. 1951. And... Um, we went into the studio, this fantastic studio, and I, I could draw a picture of the painting on the wall, on, on the easel in front of me as we went in. It was a mm. funny little stick man on a bicycle done sort of in the style of Leger and red, wow. green, and white squares with this strange stick man on a bicycle, and it just made a huge impression to be followed by wild embracing of everybody meeting up again. And they'd made this huge pyramid of glasses. Do you know that thing where you fill the top glass and the champagne then runs down into all the other mm -hmm. glasses? And in the exuberance of, of meeting everybody, my father <laughs> knocked the entire thing over. <laughs> and I just remember my mother... <laughs> turning round to him and saying, you silly bugger. Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> but it was, um, it was such a remarkable occasion. And I think that atmosphere of that studio really fixed itself in my mind. And then, of course, when I was at art school, the thing that really sort of inspired me was going to art school as a painter and finding that fantastic, but incredibly rigorous. You know, there was a lot of very rigorous tuition about exactness and whether things were correct or not, right or not, a lot of issues about wrong and right and very, I mean, mm. very good teaching, but somehow inhibiting and the way mm -hmm. I was using paint was quite thick and, needless to say, messy. <laughs> and uh, one of the tutors said, look, the way you're using paint is, is very sculptural. Why don't you go to the sculpture classes? So I went oh, wow. to the sculpture classes and mm. they were doing these, had large boards with huge blocks of clay on them. And it was a British artist, female artist called Elizabeth Frink and another British artist called Robert Clatworthy. And I think they spent most of their time drunk, which was a sort of style, <laughs> <laughs> a style of teaching in those days in the 60s, <laughs> as well as seducing students, which, of course, everybody would be kind of... <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> no longer allowed to do... <laughs> <laughs> and this was in 1961, from what I understand. I mean, 19, you were just... 1960, 1961, yes. So 1960, this was. And you were just, you started quite early. You were 16 yes, when you Yes, a, a lot of people enrolled. did. I mean, I le left school and I, I sort of knew with a slight glitch of thinking I might go to university, but I... I knew very quickly that I wanted to go to art school. But in this sculpture class, there was a life model, reclining, nude life model. And mm. both Elizabeth Frink and this other artist called Robert Clapworthy, they said, look, look at the figure, but turn your back on her and make what you remember 
with the clay. And don't wow. don't touch the clay with your hands. Find something else to use. Find a slab of wood or a knife or anything. Just try working the clay as if it was a material that you you couldn't touch. And there was something incredible about this advice because it was really saying the image isn't the only thing to consider. It's the process. It's the relating to this damp lump of mud, you know, and finding Mm. out how it can maybe lead you somewhere rather than you trying to torture it into being a copy of the female nude in front of you. And I I just found that it was like being released from prison, you know, suddenly. Wow. It was no longer about image. It was about something to do with developing a relationship with a process. I was hearing that to exactly what you said, that that was such a formative moment for you. And I was listening to a lecture you gave and you said, you know, they encouraged you to hit it with bits of wood and Mm. to finger the clay and just really treat it in in ways that were so sort of unorthodox. Yes. Um, yes. So that was really fascinating. Mm, Yes. I think it was trying to get away from a kind of inherent, a Victorian notion Mm. of very similitude, you know, things being exactly like what was in front of you. And um, Mm -hmm. the art schools were perhaps still a bit caught up in very academic traditions of teaching and evaluating what students were doing. So this was a completely liberating approach. (laughs) Mm. I think, you know, to the point about radical gestures... Amitha, I loved your question about Mm -hmm. sort of radical gestures around uh, presenting artwork. I thought that was really fascinating. You seem to be an artist that challenges norms and kind of has this very independent streak from very early on in your career. I know that you you made a very conscious decision to kind of not follow the tradition of the British sculptors that were big at the time, like Barbara Hepworth or Robert Moore. You also went around the gallery distribution model and actually found uh, venues to place your own work. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, that process that you did in the 80s? And also, you know, where you think that independent streak comes from? Do you think it can be developed or taught? I don't know about that. I think that's a really Mm -hmm. interesting question. I mean, okay, okay, I'll begin at the beginning. I think the, Mm -hmm. um, again, this is a contradiction. I think the whole way in which art schools seem to present ultimate judgments on work. And and this was Mm. quite a kind of masculine orientated set of opinions, you know, based on a legacy that was mainly masculine. And Mm. um, I think I began to find the sort of good, bad, right, wrong set of judgments just tedious and predictable. And I was... Mm hungry to look elsewhere. I began to look at Indian rock carving, you know, the very kind of erotic carvings from the the caves in India. And I started to look much further afield and came across um, Polish weavers during the 60s and 70s, quite extraordinary works that were, I think, in a way, a kind of political highly politicized in their own own way, not in an obvious way, but um, challenging all sorts of conventions and using great craft skills to make these outstanding works that defied the normal trajectory of fine art. But now, of course, I love Barbara, Barbara Hepworth's work. <laughs> Suddenly, early, <laughs> Henry, early Henry Moores, I think, are fantastic. So it was very much a a time of growing up, if you like, and assessing sort of how I could deal with my sense of frustration about something that I didn't quite know was frustrating, you know. And I think it Mm. was a real sense of rebellion against how do these authoritarian judgments get made? How how does right Mm. and wrong get decided in art? Mm. How does good and bad 
get decided or not. Mm. And to that, you know, you've used the word authoritarian to describe, suddenly I know you you described walls in galleries as authoritarian. (laughs) And I think one of the things that we are so inspired by is how you've sort of pioneered a creative way of presenting your work. Um, Mm. Amitha and I were both doing our research and we were hearing about how, I think in the 80s and 90s, you would put your work on traffic lights and TVs and kind of just throw them out the window and see where they landed. Mm. And Mm. what inspired that? Can you walk us through that irreverent, anti-authoritarian approach to presenting your work? if those are fair descriptors? Yes, I think um, I think when artists hit times where they're just not getting their work out there, you know, for whatever reason, you're, you know, maybe making the wrong work at the wrong time or whatever it may be. I mean, you know, it is a tragedy about all creative processes that most, most of what, people do may not be seen or it may not get published or it may not be Mm. heard if you're a musician, you know, that that Mm. human endeavor hits a brick wall. And I suddenly had that from about 1989 till about 1994, quite a long time when, you know, I was not able to get exhibitions, not the work was not being seen. And um, I began to think, well, what is the destination for artworks? You know, where where does art end up? It ends up in somebody's home or it ends up in a gallery or a museum or it's a public art space, you know. But what what if it's a kind of uninvited guest, (laughs) (laughs) a kind of parasite to (laughs) something that is completely incongruous. So I started, you know, tying things to lampposts or putting them on street furniture or in the domestic place on pianos and on various bits of furniture, then asking various people if I could borrow their various rooms in their houses to do this. Just in a way, it was quite a personal adventure and a very enjoyable one, you know, actually Mm. bringing together the incongruity of an ironing board as a sort of plinth and just placing something (laughs) on it that then would render the ironing board, you know, you couldn't use it. And, Mm. And just thinking about art, even if it was in a way quite a traditional object in some ways, giving it a kind of subversive role, the object that's too big to be a polite artwork in somebody's domestic space you know <laughs> what what happens when that notion of buying the artwork goes wrong <laughs> the uh, you know the the collector or whoever it might be suddenly finds they've got this completely impossible invasive object in in their midst you know and so i put art mm. objects in armchairs and as if that sort of sculptural encounter has that ability to take over. You know, I suppose the thing I love about sculpture is that meeting it in the open space or wherever it might be, the floor space, it's immediately demands a kind of relationship from the person who encounters it, even if they just want to walk past it. They've had to Mm. dodge it. They've had to step sideways. I always, I will never forget your installation in the Duveen Hall at the Tate Britain. (laughs) And just having all of the the feelings and thoughts that you just mentioned of, of being sort of overwhelmed and compelled by it. And, you know, those, those are feelings that I've had seeing and spending time with your work at the Carnegie in Pittsburgh during the Carnegie International, Mm. um, at the Royal Academy in London as well. So Mm. it's so fascinating Mm. to hear the way that you articulate 
that experience. <laughs> Gosh, I'm amazed you've seen all those works. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I was going to say it. It was funny. I realized as well. I've been fortunate enough to. That's why we were so excited that you would bless us with your time because we're both fans. And I was thinking about Thank all you. of the sort of interactions I've had with your work. And then I was like, oh, and she also has a permanent installation on the High Line too here in New York. So there was another um, <laughs> Philida moment that I've, I'd forgotten about. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Thank you. Well, I wanted to switch to your approach and your process. I love that you have a very intuitive and exploratory way of making, especially in a time when artists sometimes feel pressured to have some kind of conceptual underpinning or idea uh, before starting a work. Can you describe your intuitive approach and why, in your words, you say it is a very vulnerable way of working? I think the the vulnerability is because I think there artists who work like that, where they're in a way led by not having a pre-thought-out process. There may be some of that, you know. It's not all completely haywire, you know. It's, <laughs> there may be pre-thought ideas and images, thoughts that want to happen, but the, the process itself is unpredictable and relies a lot on the work beginning to lead for me, beginning to lead me. So it is a collaboration between me and the process. That's the sort of ideal. Um, I think looking at that, there can seem to be a lack of intellectual clout attached to that way of working, as though one's a dumb idiot just splashing around in a load of <laughs> you know, soggy materials, <laughs> trying to give them some sort of order. But I think, therefore, the critique around that way of working is very unformed. Mm. I think artwork in, in particular that's starting from a, a sort of very confident place of not knowing mm -hmm. exposes itself to a seemingly lack of intellectual grasp. I, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Well, many of your sculptures are quite massive in scale and actually require teams of studio assistants to help you realize yeah. the work. Mm. Can you speak to the collaborative relationship that you have with your studio assistants and describe what is the studio culture like at Philida Barlow Studio? Well, I, you know, I hope the main objective is to make it to make the atmosphere positive and pleasant and that there's no no temperament knocking around, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, it is very demanding what some of these works are and often we're working mm -hmm. against the clock, you know, things of mm. the works have a very big trial and error process about them, which usually begins with just myself, the studio my studio production guy called Adam, who's brilliant, him, myself, and maybe one other assistant will perhaps do some trial out tests for size and what the materials are capable of doing. And then I would bring in maybe more assistants, maybe three other um, assistants to actually help with the main production. But um, I regard it as a collaboration and it's in stark contrast to the work I do here in my studio at home, where they're small, intimate, quite private works that I can make myself um, with very limited resources and it can be a sort of never-ending story, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> a, mm. I can make in a way for myself at that point. And they are the breeding ground for the bigger works that then happen at the larger studio. Uh, so th there is a kind of very traditional process here. You know, I make the small works, I do loads of drawings, and some of them are related to bigger works 
in which case they provide that information early on, and others are just free range. <laughs> They're just there. I think one of the the things that many people assume about artists who work in the scale that you do is that an artist that works in that scale creates small smaller maquettes and what i found really fascinating is that you don't make maquettes you make sort of small sculptures yes um and those are just as important as the associated large scale work i mm. I, I thought that was really fascinating that you don't make quote-unquote maquettes, you make small sculptures. And then yes. they have a sort of big sibling, almost. Is that a fair...? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and of course, the translation from the small to the big is a lot of guesswork, and it's, there's a lot of translation that's needed for that in terms of technical decisions, which Adam um, is very good at because he's a welder, and it's extraordinary mm. to work with a welder in the studio, you know, and to be able to design, because that's what it actually is, design the right kind of substructure for some of these yes. things. And the way the way they... And it's brought lots of crises about, because the way I've always worked is that um, everything is always exposed, you know, certainly when mm. in the really from the early 90s onwards, I began making, experimenting with large works, but it would always be incredibly ad hoc. I'd go to the space with lengths of wood, any lengths of wood, loads of tape, very simple ways of joining the timber together, just nailing them and things like that, absolutely minimal technical interference. But I would be able wow. to assemble these very quick structures in this very direct, expedient way. And then as the exhibitions have got more and more ambitious, the more necessary it was to look at structure because there were more and more kind of interference from the institutions who wanted safety. Mm. <laughs> this is where Adam... <laughs> so boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam then came in and he was able to provide that. But the thing that I and still do find is the fact that the armature, in fact, this is the next sort of stage, the armature becomes concealed. And I, I don't like mm. that, you know, and therefore it's, it's becoming really important to know how to make this the steel safety structures have some role other than being just the prop for a surface that goes on them. So with the Venice columns and with the work in the Haus der Kunst called Scree stage, the armature is very exposed. It's part of the work. And that's, to me, you, you know, is a great thing that I've now got to follow up on. <laughs> I just have to tell you one thing regarding health and safety. We, Fabian, <laughs> Fabian, my husband and I were invited to go to Mexico to a town called Leon in Mexico. And they have a big Ooh. festival there. And they asked me to make a work there. And the person we were liaising with used to be in our house, used to be a lodger in our house. And he set wow. this whole thing up. And he said he could get the architecture students from the university to build the initial part of the work I wanted um, before I went out. So I sent loads of drawings and diagrams and said, just interpret this as best you can. There are no mistakes. Just do what you can. What? When I went out there, these architecture students had made this structure in a way I've never seen before. It's like build to last for a thousand years because yeah. they were. They all said that they made things from the age of three onwards, that in, the, in their homes everybody mm -hmm. mended things, everybody built things. There was always 
a great emphasis on finding materials to work with, etc., from the streets around, and it, they were so used to it. So the first thing I had to do was sort of take the structure apart, <laughs> very politely <laughs> explaining that it was too solid. They found it hilarious. But, of course, they, they didn't made it use too any well. ladders or anything. <laughs> they just climbed everywhere around the building. There was just no... There was zero health and safety. It was the most oh incredible experience. And they were just fantastic. Yes, so that was the... And thank God there was no accident. But um, it was a one, wonderful experience, actually, that freedom. You know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was going to say, one, having spent time with your installation at the Royal Academy, I just remember being like, how is this not falling down? How does this make any sense? I don't understand. <laughs> well, that's the theater of it. You're not supposed to. That's the backstage mm. magic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think it. it's strange because there's a tremendous amount of expedience in the work. You know, it's what 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 is the best way of making this hang down? You know, how can we suspend these things, you know, and um, at the same time, hang on to something that doesn't look over functional, you know, that there's yes. a, mm -hmm. a sort of surprise element in it. It's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary relationship between those two things. Mm. Philda, you, you mentioned some of these amazing experiences and moments, the, you know, experience in, in Mexico, obviously the Royal Academy show. And I think we were quite interested because many people sort of like to comment on the, the, the big breaks in your career. A lot of people say your quote unquote big break was after your Serpentine show. And then mm. you were, you know, Hauser and Wirth is an incredible gallery. And, mm. you know, that's fantastic. And everyone points to that as kind of the, the quote unquote big break. But we were curious, what, what for you is your big break or what are some of the big breaks in your ongoing career? I think this is a this is an interesting question. Of course, the Serpentine was an extraordinary experience, a slight a, a difficult experience, actually, but an extraordinary one. And then linking up with Hauser and Worth has been amazing. That that support, full-on support mm. from a gallery. Is incredible, but I think there are also more. There are always more personal big breaks, aren't there? Where yes. you you yourself as an individual have decided that something has been all right, has been a success. Yes. It can be just getting through a day from seven in the morning till ten at night can be mm, <laughs> absolutely. You congratulate yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 2020. Every day <laughs> in 2020 has exactly. been that experience. And that the success isn't just in the hands of, you know, the expected people. You know, it's mm. something. And I think those are still things that I cherish. And maybe what you've described when I was doing the Objects for series, you know, tying works to lampposts and going out in the early hours of the morning and placing works in in i i still think that that was really making me question the whole idea of the object the object mm. as sculpture you know where where does it go, go who has it how how does it relate to the flesh and blood of a of a viewer, you know, and their ability to walk around it. All, all those quite fundamental questions. I saw that as a very breakthrough time for me, you know, and mm. that was really from about 1992 till about 94. And um, it had a great impact on a set of shows I then did between 95 and 97, where... Mm. A few of them were in kind of old warehouse buildings. Um, not many people went to see them. And it was just a, a wonderful experience to make work on quite an extensive scale in some of those places. Mm. And 
to not actually be considering the audience or even the success failure of them in a in a kind of public way, but more that I was beginning to know something about what I wanted to do with space and the object and the ephemerality of the object, even though it might be quite a full-on object, that there was mm. something still ephemeral about that experience. Well, speaking of other meaningful moments, Will mentioned that you are a CBE and I know you're an RA. So for our American listeners who might not be as familiar with that high honor, could you describe a little bit about that? And also, I loved the anecdote that you shared about meeting Prince Charles and making him laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, yeah. This seems rather sort of timely. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> we in America are paying a lot of attention to the royal yes. family right now. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I am in fits with these questions right now. I am waiting for bated breath for your for your answer, <laughs> Philida, to all of those. Um, <laughs> the the thing about the the British is that they love institutions. I mean, they will institutionalize, if you don't mind me saying this dog shit if they could. <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh my goodness! So true! Yes! Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a lot of good that goes with that, you know, in that a lot of progressive things happen under that umbrella. There's a lot of things that get stuck under that. And then there's a lot of things that are very traditional that probably need to be challenged. And that's sort of what we're going through at the moment, I think, with mm. the royal family. Mm. But when you get invited to accept a CBE, in order to and get what is that... A, can you explain what a CBE it's, it's is? It's so embarrassing. It's just so <laughs> colonial. It's like you, commander, commander, please note, of the British <laughs> Empire. One, I want to know where my army is <laughs> and what bit of the empire I'm going to be given. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, so, it's, but it's, as well as the embarrassment of its sort of technical explanation, you know, it's um, the other side of it in order to, when you're offered one of these things, and a lot of people refuse, but um, oh. a lot of people will have written references for you and, um, you know, stood by you. And it just seemed too contrary to say, no, I don't want it. You know, I don't. Mm -hmm. I think when people have made an effort on one's behalf, I think it's a good thing to respect that in some way, you know. Are you kidding me? I would definitely say yes to any of the BEs. <laughs> I, I'd take a CBE, no problem, sure. <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> it, it, it just I spoke to a wonderful man when I, I rang up to find about, out about the process and this, this kind of um, person who was obviously sort of human resources person who was very used to people having doubts. And he was incredible. He, he could obviously hear from my voice that I was somewhat doubtful or, you know, sort of felt that I was colluding with the wrong side of the fence, if you know what I mean. You know? <laughs> Have my freedom taken away from me. <laughs> and he said, you know, when, when you get one of these things, there's an awful lot of good you can do with it. You know, you can help other people or, rep, you know, recommend people that you think have done really good work on a very local, you know, they don't have to be the great and the good. They can be, you know, the local people who work at the school or whatever it might be. And I thought that was a very sort of encouraging way of looking at it. So um, mm. he did a good job for me in that respect. <laughs> well, I I was wondering, I'm, I'm torn. I want to follow up on the question about Prince Charles. Oh, yeah. But I oh, also yes, want yes. to ask, but I also want to ask about your teaching career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I we all stood in a, a room before you go on. You stand in a room, and there was I was with a, a wonderful woman who was getting her CBE for um, rowing, and what she oh. had done was was to open up all the waterways, as many waterways as she could, and it's ongoing to make them clean again, environmentally so safe, and to get rowing clubs going for these waterways for, for children and young people to use. Um, Amazing. Quite extraordinary work. So these would often be in towns that had, had a former industrial glory that no longer did, and there are a lot in the UK um, that are in not such a great way, you know. So she was mm. opening up old canals and uh, quite incredible. It was amazing hearing her speak. And the guy in front of me was uh, dressed in his Air Force uniform, you know. And uh, I said, oh, what do you, what can you do? And he said, well, he said, it's, he said, I don't really know how I've got these things. He said, give me a, um, what are they called? It's, it's the jets that rise straight off the ground, what they call Harrier jets, I think. Ooh. And uh, he said, give me one of those and I can take it apart and put it together again. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I just thought that was so, oh God. I don't know, sort of remarkable. Diverse talents. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, however much one might question the armed services and all the rest of it, but, you know, here was this chap who was so sort of modest about what he could do, you know, and obviously everybody would be completely dependent on him for their their safety, you know, sort of remarkable. So I just think the cross-section of people who get these things is probably really does a very good job as well, you know. It's um, maybe in, quite encouraging. But when I well, went I'm... to get mine, my... Um, get the actual thing, the medal thing. <laughs> um, I had to go up there and all the rest of it. And then Prince Charles said to me, and what kind of sculpture do you make? And I know he's very particular about architecture and art and everything. So I said to him, well, oh, interesting. I'm sorry, but it's the very ugly kind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I died. He laughed. He really laughed. And he said, would you, would you ever make some beautiful kind? And I said, well, I might for you, you know. <laughs> sycophantic, you know. <laughs> but it was, it was quite nice to he laughed, you know. Well, another thing, another accomplishment that we wanted to ask you about was you ha have an ex extensive and very impressive career as a teacher in that I know you started your teaching career at what is now called the University of West England in Bristol in 1966. And then you became a professor of fine art and actually director of the undergraduate studies at the prestigious Slade School of Art in London until 2009. And we were just curious, what was it that prompted you to pursue teaching and and why is it or, or was it important to you? Well, I think I was very lucky. Both Fabian and I were very lucky to have left art school in 66, 1966, when... And for listeners, Fabian is your is your husband? Yes. Or partner? Yeah, yeah Fabian Peake, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he and I were very lucky to emerge from art school when art schools in this country were going through a kind of transformation I think that it it was it was a reliable income. It also maybe perversely sort of provided this way in which the commercial side of art wasn't an imperative, but the mm. experimenting personal side of art was the imperative. So I think that raises quite interesting questions about what these institutions can provide, you know, that um, mm, absolutely. if you're getting an income that way, you may be, even if you're not conscious of it, you can sort of sideline um, the commercial side of making and not be so desperate in a way to engage with the, gal the gallery side of making art. But I think once you are in the teaching 
professions, you are in a way slightly marginalized by those other institutions. Mm. Mm-hmm. You have a very creative, immediate family. You mentioned earlier your husband, Fabian Peake, uh, who's an artist. You also have a son, Eddie Peake, who's an artist, and a daughter, Florence, who's a performance artist, yes. and another daughter who's a writer, and a son who's an illustrator, um, which is so impressive. Another daughter who is, um, she's uh, she works at a big, really quite globally important HIV clinic in the centre of London. Wow. Um, as, a, wow. as a senior nurse there. And she's been on the front line with COVID, so we've heard that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Heart beating with love to hear that. Uh, and yet she she paints at the weekend and her her drawings and paintings of the patients the covid patients which obviously is oh, very wow. very proud are really astonishing actually mm. um quite amazing i hope at some point people will be able to see them because they really capture i think a very different level of observation that is different from what you get on the news, mm. if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. that's been quite an experience for her, you know, that. Yeah, well, can you tell us, what, what was it like to raise a family with another artist? What, what were some of the challenges or, I guess, upside to someone who kind of knows the same artist life as you? Um, we've shared a huge amount, uh, Fabian and I, you know, and... Um, when the children were all small, of course, it was it was difficult. And I don't know, you know, it was chaotic. And I always feel, oh, my God, you know, poor things. They came through this sort of <laughs> <laughs> chaotic, sort of stressful time in the 80s where, you know, we really didn't, you know, it was very difficult. We were doing quite minor teaching jobs because mm. but we shared the week he was able to work one end of the week and I was able to work the other so we then um could then have the remaining days uh to be in the studio if we got time it was quite it was it was difficult you know it was a mm. tough time but then when they all started to be at school we could kind of there were two times, one when they were tiny, where we could split the day in two and I would work in the morning and then have the children in the afternoon. And then when when um, the, the teaching got more, we had to take on more teaching to make mm-hmm. ends week, then it really did become difficult because we were working maybe only at the weekends in our studios and perhaps only one one day in the weekday, um, but it was important that we were both there to split the time. So we've always had this kind of split time um, arrangement, which actually was very disciplined and mm. created that right kind of determination, I think, you know, to keep going. I, mm. I still find the four-hour working time is sort of, ingrained in me, you know, it's like... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> getting enough done in four hours, you know. <laughs> now it explains your expedient way of working. Very speedy. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah. yeah. And and that in that four hours, I have to have a result, you know. It can't just mm-hmm. be, you know, um, waiting, Mm. <laughs> is it I have to take some action during that time. <laughs> well, Philida, I'm I'm familiar with Florence and Eddie's work. I, I remember seeing Eddie's installation at the Barbican, which I just yeah. totally fell in love with. And unfortunately I missed his performance here in New York when Jeffrey Dyke's gallery opened. But I was curious you obviously have been an amazing teacher how do you balance with your children who are artists being a parent versus a teacher do you ha- ever have that inclination to be like well you know i think that you should consider oh god you know, no how do you turn that teacher <laughs> side of your brain off no no i think there's a point where 
as a parent, you just let go, don't you? You just say, mm. um, we're all in this together and um, this isn't a time for advice. Advice is a very risky thing, isn't it? Anyway, giving advice is, you know, it's, there's a kind of arrogance about giving advice, I think. There are other ways of doing it, you know, but I, mm. I don't, I have no inclination to get into that role with them, you know. And um, I think the main thing we both feel, Fabian and I, is that, um, you know, as we all know, people can be pretty cruel about the art you do, you know. And the thing is to always be that extremely strong support for them. I think that's our first priority, really. (laughs) You sound like a dream parent in that case. (laughs) Is that a plea to be adopted? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) I suddenly found myself being completely nauseated by what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I mean, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I don't want to get locked into... And it's strange, as a parent, you don't, you relinquish us. I mean, I just don't feel that critical apparatus at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, I've lost that hunger since leaving art school. I just feel so um, much that the tribe of artists that we all are, whether it's deemed good or bad, it just really doesn't matter. Maybe, Amitha, what do you think? Can we switch to to art kiki? Amitha, do you want to tell Philida what a kiki is? Do you know what a kiki is, Philida? I've read it on your, yes. (laughs) 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 Yes, it's good. It's good, yeah. I think I've just said what what I feel most optimistic. I think the huge thing I see is that I'm really thinking about a lot is how ecological, environmental issues are going to impact on the arts. You know, what an artist like myself, who probably has a huge kind of red dot over where I work as a kind of emergency, environmentally hazardous (laughs) (laughs) uh, area of working with cement and all sorts of things, that aren't good for the environment, although I do do a lot of recycling. That's the only <laughs> positive I can That's offer. That's true. Yeah. 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 So, um, and always have done. But but I think, you, you know, COVID maybe is sort of offering some kind of other message for the way, the way art can become shipped transported, you know, the endless crating of art, the endless Mm. carbon footprint that art has through being transported and people going to art fairs, etc., etc., etc. The list is endless, you know. What, What environmental, ecological joy can be brought to the complacency of art in how it delivers itself, you know, what mm. would it? What does it mean? Well, Philda, I'm curious because you work with an amazing gallery, and I think just last week they announced that Hausenberg is going to have a a carbon footprint director, and oh, they're going to limit. <laughs> yes, I mean it sounds amazing that they're going to you know be very judicious about how they travel and shipping. So, yes, yes. how do you, you know, what do you feel about? There are some really bad practices in the art world. Yes, I mean, it must I'm, be very frustrating. I will include myself that. in that, openly include it. And, and it's better to be, say, yes, I think I have some bad practices. There's lots of debris that leaves the studio, you know, lots of cement spills and stuff like that and works that haven't worked out that I need to break down. I think installing the Haus der Kunst by Zoom was torturous, extremely <laughs> difficult. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, a really, really, really difficult, not being able to judge the space and everything. But um, we've got to think about whether technology 
will improve on. I mean, if they can do images from Mars, for God's sake, with that clarity, (laughs) why can't they make, you know, Zoom be able to really present, you know, that kind of clarity of image, et cetera, et cetera. I know it's about the kind of internet connections as well, but the internet needs to be you know, taken to task over this. Amen. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, we always like to ask at the end of these interviews, what are you looking forward to uh, in the next six months? I'm I'm looking forward to, sorry, it's very slightly boring, actually, not really. (laughs) I'm looking forward to rationalizing my studio a bit, rationalizing. It's been so full on the last, three years that I need to take a breather Mm. and see what's really important for me in terms of running a big studio and assistance. And I would much rather run a smaller outfit and even in a smaller space. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to planning that. I mean, one thing I've loved about um, the lockdowns, and this is completely selfish, is working at home every day with Fabian. Mm. Um, It's been horrible not seeing the children and the grandchildren, you know, all that is painful. But just this really wonderful routine. We both go in the studios, then we meet for supper and things like that. And it's just... Wow. It's what I think it's... So romantic. Yeah, it is. It's it's lovely. It's how it should be. And it's how we were right at the beginning of our, you know, way back in the 60s. And um, mm-hmm. in, instead of, you know, I mean, it's sad to say this, but instead of having to hurtle across London to the studio in South London and be tirelessly directing um, mm-hmm. this time when I just being able to make, make, make and, and draw and things. It's just been a, an incredible experience that's made me want to rethink the future quite a lot, you know. Well, I mean, you're, a... you're both young. What, what, you know, I just want to revert for my own interest. What, what, how would you both answer that question? I'm looking forward. This is a very lame answer, but I'm looking forward to traveling again. It's I've been yes. grounded for you know over a year, and that's been hard not to see friends and not to be able to explore different destinations. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Yes, yeah, mm. nice, yeah. I I would say travel, and then I think some of the themes you touched on, Filda. I really hope that things change in terms of how we treat the environment that we live in. Um, I hope that, you know, humans take such like a domineering approach. And I hope that we sort of, COVID encourages people to be more more kind and generous and grateful to the environment that we live in. And then I really hope it's funny that I think the honeymoon of Trump being gone is coming to a close. And now people are going to start really, they're already really starting to interrogate the policies of Joe Biden, who is too centrist in my mind. So I really hope that in addition to the ecological stuff over the next six months, we'll really start to see some really powerful, meaningful, progressive thinking and policies being implemented. Yes, I mean, I think about your... Your generation, I mean, I don't never know what anybody's ages are, but I think the current 20-year-olds to 40-year-olds, I think it's tough, really tough, mm. you know, um, and I feel for them. And I think my generation were very, um, the, there was sort of the extraordinary ambitions in my, you know, there was the whole hippie movement in the 60s mm. that then collapsed. Mm. And that then turned, you know, like a some sort of weird magic into this ambitious kind of 80s, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. drive. And you, you sort of see these waves coming and going. But um, it seems now as though the 
there is a time to take stock on the last 40 or 50 years in a really positive way and not be too tied up in looking backwards. Now is the time for absolutely no complacency. Agreed. Mm. Philida, thank you so, so much. My my heart is singing after this conversation. It's just been a true highlight. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you both for your lovely questions, your empathy and your your fun and your seriousness. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much indeed. And a huge oh. pleasure and honor to take part in this. Thank you. Thank you, Philida. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineering is by Hanger Studios. Photography by Enrique Vega and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.